Hey, everybody. Welcome to Connected. I'm Kyle Van Pelt, co-founder and CEO of MileMarker. My co-host is Judd Mackerel, co-founder of MileMarker as well. Connected is a show about the people and technologies that are shaping and building the wealth management industry. More people than ever are searching for great financial advice, and more firms than ever are trying to figure out how to scale their operations to serve those who are searching for their advice. We believe that better connected technology provides the space for better connected people, which leads to better advice. Welcome to Connected. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Connected. I am your host, Kyle Van Pelt, CEO of MileMarker. And today I have the pleasure and privilege of being joined by Matt Brinker. Matt is the managing partner at Merchant Investment Management. He's an expert on M&A in the wealth management industry. He's a guest lecturer at UC Irvine, which is pretty cool. He's a heck of an endurance athlete and an enormous fan of his son's basketball team. (laughs) Matt, did I miss anything on the intro? No, other than I'm a managing partner. I've got other brilliant minds around me. So make sure that Several managing partners over at Merchant. Okay, got yeah, it. Yeah, exactly right. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and carving out the time to have a conversation. Sure. It's always good to chat with you, man. Absolutely. So I want to kick us off with straight into kind of some of the M&A expertise. So over the course of your career, both at Merchant and, and you know your stops before that, I mean, you've probably looked at hundreds of firms or evaluated hundreds of firms as you think about either an investment or an acquisition of those firms. So for a lot of the people listening to this, like, what does it take to get someone like you excited about a deal? Like, when you look at a firm, what makes your eyes light up and go, "Oh man, this is this is a killer deal for us"? You know, I think it's it's important to kind of break it out into two distinct categories, which is the qualitative aspects and then the the quantitative aspects. I think the quantitative aspects are easy. These businesses, these wealth management firms aren't overly complex, right? You know, you look at the PNL, you look at the client segmentation, you look at the growth rates, and you know, those are super interesting to look at and important to understand. But I think what really informs the financials and the client retention and the organic growth rates is the underlying infrastructure of the business. That means operating scale, effective use of technology, uh, there's a semblance of a consistent client experience, meaning that it's just isn't just sort of, you know, depending on what door you go down, you get a different client experience based upon what advisor you see. You know, there's some semblance of systematic growth, right? Beyond just referrals, you know, deliberate growth. Um, talk more about that later. Usually when there is consistent growth, there's a defined marketing, branding, and strategy that comes along with that, meaning they know who their clients are and they know how to talk to them or their future clients. Yeah, the investment process is fairly consistent. Again, along the lines of the client experience, you know, I think, you know, they've been able to transact in the past and do that with a degree of financial prudence and effective integration. And then, you know, I think about Next generation being equitized or have a path to ownership, that's critical to a certain extent. And, you know, it's really a, 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 a test of durability. You know, is it really a lifestyle business? Is it really people dependent? Yeah. So those are some of the key variables that I look at and we look at that I think make great firms and get excited about investing in. 
That's awesome. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I, I kind of want to maybe start uh, from from the back to the front. So you talked about the next gen being equitized, and there's a lot of conversation about succession plans and you know all of these people trying to figure out things as well as okay how do we empower the next generation of planners because I, I continue to see the data right now that's kind of scary which is there's more and more demand demand for financial advice is going up into the right in a meaningful way especially since covid it's crazy it's skyrocketing yet yeah. the amount of young people getting into the profession is either flat or declining right so it's like you have all of these people who are thinking about selling their business or, you know, maybe like advisors getting re to retirement age, you have demand exploding for financial advice, and then you have young people not getting into the business. So, right. I mean, that seems like a really interesting problem, even for the best firms out there. How do you think about that? Well, it keeps you up a little bit at night. Yeah. You know, you and I are reading the same same research. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a challenge that in the same breath, I'm seeing the better firms really take advantage of. Because, you know, when you think about an enterprise business, part of that enterprise business is that they've figured out roles and responsibilities, and they've figured out a way to onboard individuals and give real clear career trajectory. I, I think if we sort of had to generalize and look at the wide swath of the wealth management space, 300 million, 400 million of AUM. And most of those employees there are sort of, you know, jack of all trades. Some do a little compliance, a little fee billing, a little balancing, client prep and the like. And there's not a lot of career trajectory with those roles. I mean, you can't take that individual and place them in another firm and have them to be, be as effective because there's different inconsistencies and in systems and process. So, you know, I, again, I think when it comes to organic growth, organic growth, um, systems and process, and onboarding next generation of employees, there's a certain ilk of firms that know how to know how to do that, and will continue to win when it comes to uh, attracting talent, um, developing talent, and keeping talent. Um, so, again, I think it's you know this this industry seemingly is is getting concentrated in the top one, two, three percent. Um, yeah. Right, right. In terms of all of the things that really fundamentally matter to a good, healthy, durable company. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it, it makes me think about organic growth. That seems to be just another super hot topic in the industry. You know, my former stomping grounds, Riskalyze rebrands into nitrogen and becomes yeah. kind of the growth platform. And They've been talking about organic growth a lot. I think the industry is talking about it a lot because we experienced this crazy decade plus long bull market. And maybe you didn't have to worry about growth so much because the tailwinds were just there. Now, all of a sudden, people are thinking about it again. But what I love about what you just said is, well, OK, organic growth is not just something because you want to make more money or grow your firm, but actually it is the engine for career growth for talent. It, it sort of cool. is the, the the piece that drives everything for all of those things you just mentioned. Yes, more money might be on the other side of it, but it is the consistency in your firm that allows great talent to want to come there. All of I'd never thought about that before. Unpack that a bit. So I, you know, I think of it as a what I call it building a destination firm. And if you build a destination firm for clients, it's almost painfully obvious. But if you, you know, you build a destination firm for clients, everything else sort of falls into place in terms of keeping and attracting talent, not only from a, an administrative operational perspective, but also 
the advisors who are looking to join a firm. And, you know, again, to your point, it is such a competitive landscape in terms of attracting that generate that that talent. Then when, you know, someone who's contemplating joining firm A versus firm B, when you walk into there's a, there's an easy eye test with most wealth management firms. You know, you walk into the office and you're like, oh, okay, these these folks haven't figured out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you just sort of tell. But then when you sort of unpack the eye test, a lot of it is 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 there. The things that I mentioned earlier in terms of what makes enterprise interesting, because you know growth has energy, right? And you walk into an organization, you could feel the growth. I mean, like walk into Apple's headquarters versus you know some pen manufacturing plant in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. It's going to be a different energy. Not yeah, I'm Sheboygan, Wisconsin, but um, you know, there's a different vibe there. <laughs> Sheboygan, very big in Sheboygan. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I actually think that's that's really uh, insightful because I think when you hear most of the people talking about growth, it, you know, it is received as well. This is how you you make more money, or this is how your business is more viable. But it is it creates energy. It does all of these other sort of things. So. I think the next thing I want to ask you about is like, okay, great, Matt. We want to ramp up our organic growth rate. Like, sounds awesome. Right now, traditionally, our firm has grown through referrals just like lots of other people. And we get referrals. We serve our clients well. But we don't know the first thing about how to how to crank up the organic growth marketing engine or growth just growth engine as a whole. So what do we do? How do, how do you how would you recommend a firm starts growing more organically? Ooh, gosh, that's a loaded question. Tough one. When you see the service providers and the solutions and the articles, it, it talks about social and digital and, you know, doing Facebook ads and LinkedIn ads and COI and, and the like. And I think those are all good. But I, I think some people have the sequence out of order a little bit. And before spending time, money and energy, because it requires all of that to be an effective organic grower is really understanding, do you have a client experience worth buying, right? Because the referral growth is really a function of a trust exercise. It's a client saying to one individual, hey, yeah, my team's awesome. Go talk to them. And that connective tissue, it's an easier close, obviously, because there's familiarity and trust and judgment from one friend to another. And they walk in and it's just so there isn't a lot of there is a lot of testing with referral on the veracity of the client experience as a winning solution, as a differentiated solution against the rest of the market. So I think having an honest assessment around your client experience in terms of differentiation and how you differentiate, how you tell the differentiated story versus everything that's out there is step one, pre-organic growth. Because you can go and spend thousands and thousands of dollars on Facebook, but you know if your story isn't also real story, well then it's just you know it's it's hard to differentiate and get above the, the din. So I, I encourage our partner firms before going and spending these marketing bu- budgets on those type of things. Let's make sure that we have a really good differentiated client experience. And then, then I also talk to our partner firms about the opportunities that are hiding in plain sight. You know, there's a $53 trillion wealth transfer taking place between baby boomers and next generation. By 2030, I think women are going to control $30 trillion of of wealth. And we've got baby boomers as clients, which means that we have children 
<laughs> right? One degree separated from our clients. That to me is not only playing defense, but it's also a massive organic growth opportunity, right? It's figuring out, do I have a client experience that's going to attract the 45-year-old uh, or the 50-year-old? That's going to inherit, in some cases, large sums of money. So, you know, do we have a process in place? Do we have a client experience in place? Uh, are we talking to that next generation of wealth today and building relationships? Again, and same sort of same sort of concept with the women who are going to be controlling so much wealth in a period of time. And, you know, one thing that we did uh, right at United Capital is that we we developed a client experience that was really focused on engaging what we call the non-CFO spouse, which tended in some cases to be the woman of the relationship, generally speaking. Learning and figuring out how to engage and talk to and deliver a client experience for women, I think, becomes crucial. So, you know, I get that we're wanting to look outside of our scope for organic growth, but I think there's some real relatively low-hanging fruit hiding in plain sight right in front of us that, that should be buttoned up as well. Yeah, I, I think that's insightful. One of the best places to grow your business is with the people who are already doing business with you. Exactly. Um, and you, so you, you've mentioned the, the phrase client experience a couple of times, and, and I know that's a, something near and dear to your heart. Um, a lot of times when people hear that phrase, I think they think of like a digital client experience because that's kind of been all the rage. I mean, but it's more than digital, isn't it? Yes. I mean, digital is, is just the delivery mechanism. And, you know, what's behind the digital experience or, or the physical experience is, again, I think when we think about, and I don't think of women as niche, I think dentists is a niche business. I think, you know, architects. Yeah, women are, are just humans, right? Yeah, it, it, exactly. And when it, when it comes to, again, picking on the generational opportunities, you know, when I think about the 45-year-old or the 55-year-old, they want a digital experience. They want it personalized. They want it relatively on demand. They typically don't want to be physically in the office. They want a more holistic experience, meaning investments, planning, tax, a one-stop shop. So I, as I think about that next generation client experience, those are the things that, that come to mind just sort of caution generalizing, but bear with me, you know, when it comes to women, um, and I'll speak for my, my wife, Lauren, who has sort of informed me on what the right type of client experience is for her, it really centers around values, the why part of money, right? When it comes to why are we doing what we're doing? Why are we working the way we work? Why are we educating our kids the way we're educating them? How are we going to give philanthropically? She certainly understands that the investment side of the house and the income side of the house facilitates all of it, which matters. But in our conversations with our advisor, 75% of the conversation is around the values, the value part of our money. And, you know, again, not to extrapolate out that every woman thinks in that regard, but the women in my life and the women that, you know, I refer advisors to, that tends to be, you know, when I ask the question, what matters? What do you want from your advisor? And yeah. those tend to be the answers I get. Yeah. I think that's great, man. I, I, yeah. I mean, I think about too, 
you guys at United Capital like pioneered honest conversations, right? Which was just such a an incredible piece of the client experience. I know that's what you're talking about. That was kind of the the yeah. biggest mechanism for engaging the non-CFO spouse is, hey, how do we have honest conversations about money? And and that's a great client experience, right? Because I think at its core, people who come to talk to a financial advisor, I mean, they're coming with all of their fears and their hopes and their dreams and their anxieties about money. They're not coming to talk about asset allocation, right? They're, they're coming to ask right. probably one fundamental question, which is, are we okay? Am I okay? Right. Am I going to be okay? And if you, you know, take somebody who comes in with that mindset and you start talking about numbers and figures and, you know, cell C and row F, you know, or row nine or whatever, it's like, I think you're just missing the boat. And that, you know, that client experience is help me reduce that fear and anxiety. And I think that, you know, what you all did with honest conversations and how you made that digital, how you made it physical was really impactful and powerful and led yeah. to a bunch of organic growth, right? It did. It did. You know, we were able to obviously see through the data analytics of of the, the client that was a client in the financial, um, the fin life experience versus the non, you know, it was client retention was materially higher. We had a massive level of wallet share compared to just an investment management solution. And we actually charged more for this service because it was worth paying for. So all of the attributes of what you would want in a pure win and our net, most importantly, our net promoter score went up, just wins across the board. And it also, from an enterprise value perspective, it sort of extracted the lifestyle nature out of the client advisor relationship, which is good if you have equity, equity in the business, bad if you're an employee, warehouses are working to that end. And I'm seeing a lot of firms that are using that philosophy and continuing that sort of digital values-based. We didn't pioneer that concept. We just packaged it, right? There wasn't really any secret sauce. It was just applied and, and, and built right. And like I said, I'm seeing a bunch of firms take that thinking and apply it really intelligently. You know, it's amazing because some people use that as like a, a throwaway statement of, you know, it was just packaging. But, you know, when I think about our business, I mean, everybody has the same ingredients, right? It's like you're all working with the same, you know, investment vehicles, obviously with some exceptions if you have, if sure. you can get allocations into, you know, Sequoia or some of the really, but I mean, everybody's working with the same ingredients and all of that stuff. And at the end of the day, the only way to really differentiate your wealth management firm is by who you are as a person, because nobody can be Matt Brinker as well as Matt Brinker can, you know, can be. Uh, but then also how you package up all of those same ingredients and services, right? Yeah. Uh, a three Michelin star restaurant, you know, has the same at its core ingredients as, you know, a different restaurant. It's all about what they do to prepare them and the techniques they use to package them up and put them on a dish for you. That's right. And the client experience they create out in the front of house. So, I mean, I do think there's a takeaway there for a lot of people listening to this is how much time are you spending thinking about the packaging of your services? Or are you just going out and saying, we're a holistic financial planner who helps people, you know, do financial planning and achieve their money goals? You're, you're spot on. I used to do a competitive analysis for firms that we were engaged with. And we draw, and I encourage people to do this, draw a 30 mile radius around your business, include every firm in, in that circle. and Go look at the the website, the messaging, the terminology, and it's all the same. Independent, fiduciary, holistic, 
CFP, the websites are effectively very similar. And in the CSAMENESS, you know, that differentiation, it is a hard thing to do, but the firms that are winning are doing it. And a lot of work, but, you know, for firms that are willing to invest in their company. And that's another, you know, critical thing. I don't think I failed to mention in the characteristics of a firm. It's firms that are willing to put money back in business. You know, so many firms, and it's fine, are lifestyle businesses. And, you know, they're treating them as cash flow machines, and that's fine. But please don't conflate, you know, a lifestyle business with something that has enterprise value. And, you know, there's always a disconnect between buyers and sellers in that distinguishing characteristic. I see a lot, a lot of lifestyle firms reading the multiples and seeing the headline numbers and expect to be valued in that regard. And they're just not. And a little bit of an editorializing, but, you know, I think that's a, a challenge for a lot of buyers and sellers and why things don't get done. Well, it's a huge point because I think there's a lot of lifestyle practices, quote unquote, out there that might have a ton of assets under management and think that's what makes them very valuable. But the challenge for a buyer is if you take that founder or principal out of that high asset man or high uh, AUM business, well, can can you sustain it, right? Are those yeah. people going to stay? Can you continue to produce that all of that? So yeah. yes, there is a difference between a successful advisory firm. Nobody's taking that away from you that throws off lots of cash and that has a lot of assets and that serves clients exceptionally well and a firm that has enterprise value um, because of the processes, because of the team, because of the ability to recruit, because of the ability to grow. I think that's that's a good distinction. Yeah, and, and you know, we're working with a handful of firms as merchant partners to help them move through that evolution. You know, it requires a, a concerted effort and understanding what the next two to three years looks like and how to make it happen. You can do it. You can evolve from a lifestyle business into something that actually has enterprise value. Okay. So you talked about the FinLife platform a little bit. I actually wanted to call that out because as we're talking about enterprise value, you mentioned that was, that was. do you remember roughly at, at what level in the business United Capital decided to invest in building out FinLife? Because that, you know, that was something that, that you, you know, that company built, you know, to, yeah. to wrap a bunch of technology together, to add their own sort of packaging to our discussion and I think that was such a huge win for the company. There might be some firms out there listening to this that are thinking about a similar experience. You know, sure. at what point did it make sense to invest in that versus continuing to just use, hey, this is the technology available to us right now? I remember it, remember it vividly. It was during off during one of our offsites, and you know, one of the key things that we continually asked ourselves is how would how would how would you disrupt United Capital? The answer started to become it would be very easy to disrupt United Capital, right? In terms of client retention, client growth, differentiating ourselves as an acquirer, you know, offering an, an interesting platform that helps advisors do better, be better. And so at that point, we then started to think deeply about the, the, the client experience. You know, we were reading all of the research in terms of next generation, digital women, and thought, okay, how do we build something that is digital? How do we build something that is going to not ignore the other person in the relationship? And, you know, we also wanted it to be you know, behavioral finance driven. But what's an untold story uh, is we bought a business in Ridgewood, New Jersey that had 120 million, maybe, maybe 150 million of AUM. He had a card game. And it was really the 
really the the you know it was that was the seed you know I I remember seeing uh, going to his office and I just was like oh, okay this is this is what you're doing is super interesting called Joe on the way back from dinner I was like you got to see what this dude's doing here and from that kind of spun up into you know the honest conversation okay so you just talked about you know how you guys made a lot of purchases I know that's how you grew that's how a lot of people are growing now. We've talked about how do we increase our enterprise value. We've talked about how do we grow. We've talked about what are the characteristics of a firm that makes somebody like you get excited about doing a deal. I want to actually look on the other side of the table now. So you've done lots of transactions, you know, but if somebody's getting ready to maybe sell their firm or enter a transaction, it's probably the first time they've ever done it. Uh, you know, they have that whole I don't know what I don't know mentality. So from where you see, everybody gets excited about, oh my gosh, this is going to happen, right? We're going we're gonna to go do a deal. And then inevitably, the process starts happening. It takes longer. What should the, the person listening to this who may be you know, thinking about a transaction or whatever, like what emotional bombs are going to detonate in the middle of this process? <laughs> like what should they be preparing for that's not the stuff you would know? Oh, I've got to put together my client segmentation. I got to put together the spreadsheets and all of that. But like, where have you seen things go off the rails in these transactions or really seen things break down for, for folks? Mismanaged expectations. And I, I know that's a, it's kind of a weak answer. And a lot of those emotional bombs that take place post-close when there really hasn't been clear understanding of what the integration looks like. And, you know, we had to unwind a couple of deals because of that. Either people were talking past each other or weren't really wanting to hear what was being said on either side. So, you know, I always thought, and I, and I ended up building this into our process, which was sort of post LOI, post letter of intent, that there was a sort of an understanding of integration just so there was no sort of miscommunications and misunderstandings. When you close the deal, you're halfway there, right? Because the other half is a, a successful integration. And so that's just mission critical, particularly when you're buying 100% of a business and somebody goes from being an entrepreneur, running the show, controlling every aspect to an employee and integrating onto a, a constrained model. I, I'm sort of reminiscing on the challenges of you know, level setting that in advance of closing the transaction, particularly when you're, when you're buying 100% of a business. So I, again, it's, you know, the simple answer is just really level setting expectations across the entire journey and, and being very explicit and understanding when someone says, yeah, we'd like you to you know, use the, the investment management platform when you come over. Okay, well, how much? Under what time, under what conditions, tax implications of my clients, like, you know, really sort of understanding what that means. Particularly, again, particularly when it's a, a wholesale transaction, when you're selling 100% of the business and you're going from an entrepreneur to an employee because you're no longer the boss. And then also asking yourself, do you want to, do you want to be an employee? Yeah, that's, that's great. I think the, the big soundbite out of that is, hey, when the transaction closes, you're only 50% of the way through the process. Because yes. I think most people think that is the quote unquote exit, you know, or whatever. It's like, oh, I've, 
business is closed. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go off into the sunset now or go whatever. And it's like, no, no, no. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, that the, maybe the hard work is really starting at that point, right? Well, yeah, exactly. And particularly with the way that these deals are structured, you, know, you see the headline numbers of 6,000 times EBITDA. Well, guess what? You know, you're going to have to earn, you know, into that valuation. Our, our media does a real poor job of, and, and people who are promoting high multiples of talking about the most important part is terms. I mean, the adage of, yeah, you name the price, I get to name the terms is yeah, very yeah. true. All right. So we've actually spent a lot of time talking about kind of what you were doing at, at United Capital. Some of it was relevant to what you're doing now, but you know, maybe a lot of the people listening to this are familiar with Merchant. Maybe they're not. Uh, might be a good opportunity now as we're talking about all of this um, for for you to share. Like, how does Merchant help firms? Like, and what is what does an ideal firm look like for you guys? Sure. Well, everything that I learned to do and not to do was from my experience at United Capital. You know, the way Merchant is structured is you make minority investments in wealth management firms and. You know, I, I had front row seats to what happens when somebody goes from an entrepreneur to an employee. The way that we think about, you know, how we work is, you know, making sure that our partner firms maintain control of the business, have, you know, control of the, the upside and, and really control the future, how the, how the business operates and scales. The other variable is that, you know, private equity can tend to have shorter shot clocks than what individuals want. And it, that certainly influenced our our outcome. And so I always say the duration of your capital informs your strategy. You know, if you have a three to four year capital, well, then you're going to think about developing marketing and branding, developing next generation of talent, investing in organic growth, investing back in operational infrastructure. So when you have a, a longer runway, uh, you can think about increments of, you know, five, seven, 10, 15 years, which is, you know, how I think of long duration capital or longer duration capital. And, you know, we are a group of people who are actual operators. Yeah. When you look at, you know, my partners and the people that make up Merchant, we're operators, meaning that we've built wealth management firms. We've operated large RIAs. We've built them from scratch. We've worked at some of the biggest institutions on on Wall Street and the like. So we have a really interesting sort of bench of people. So when we face to a, up to our partners as strategic capital, we know what they're going through, right? Whether or not you're at 3 billion and you're trying to get to 10, whether you're at one trying to get to five, whether it's, you're trying to figure out a merger, we certainly understand the business and that helps when you're deploying capital and individuals or firms want capital that aligns with them to help them strategically figure out what they want to do next. And so it's kind of hard to say what we do for our, our partner firms. I mean, maybe just sort of anecdotally and case study wise, we just launched, a, I think probably one of the biggest breakaways. We stood up an RIA uh, with our partner firm Concurrent, which... Um, step out of Raymond James to create a $5 billion RIA overnight, facilitated a $5 billion management buyout of a firm that stood up their own RIA. A couple of our firms have merged. You know, we've built next generation equity plans. We've completely ret retrofitted investment operations. And so it's just, it's across the spectrum of how we partner up with our firms. And I always tell people, Merchant's value goes well beyond our four walls. And just being 
relatively well networked through the industry. We are a phone call away to bring in really intelligent third parties to help us think through and execute whatever's cooking in our, our partner firms. I, mean, I think there's, we have about 70 investments. It's about 150 billion of, of AUM across the ecosystem. So it's, it's pretty big. And I was thinking about, I don't know if you remember that commercial, I think it was 3M. We don't make the products, we make the products you buy better. Yeah. That's how I kind of think of merchant. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, well, well said. So I think, you know, the distinction there, at least that I hear is if I'm breaking away, you know, there's obviously options to go to more of the quote unquote platforms, right? Or things like that. Merchant isn't necessarily a platform, right? Where, you know, you're going to come and, and put your ADV yeah. with you guys or be an IAR or anything along those lines. You right. are investing, you are providing capital and you're providing assistance and how they're going to use and deploy that capital strategically, but they're not tucking themselves under a merchant platform, right? That's correct. That's 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 exactly right. Because we want to we want to ensure that you know we're thinking through the best viable options depending on the type of business that's that's being launched or breaking away. And you know, look, seventy plus percent of our partner firms are existing RIAs, right? So they're thinking about growth capital from merchant for acquisition, you know, investing back in the business, equitizing next gen, providing some liquidity for founders. It's kind of hard to really say the three things that we do because it it, it really covers the full spectrum of, you know, sort of the evolution of a business. We've, like I said, we've launched businesses from scratch to, you know, working with large OSJs that have thousands and thousands of advisors on their platform, helping them work through creating enterprise value for an OSJ concept. So it's pretty dynamic. Part of my rationale of partnering with Merchant is I'm so keenly aware of my blind spots and I know what I'm good at, but more importantly, I, I, I know where I'm, I've got blind spots and you know my, my partners have you know, areas of expertise that are just, you know, really helpful, you know, in terms of how we face up to our partners around the country. Oh, and internationally, right? So yeah, we're we're technically an international firm. We've got partner firms, investments in Australia, Brazil, and Switzerland. So that's that's pretty interesting as well. So I'm curious too, when you're looking at this and, and providing growth capital for people, we talked about the importance of FinLife. You know, obviously at mile marker, I'm I'm a little biased as I ask this question, but everybody kind of has access to the same platforms, right? And a lot of the larger firms are all using mostly the same technology. Are you seeing a lot of these firms use any of this investment to try and create sort of their own FinLife-esque platform on top of this? Or is everybody just aiming to try and be as efficient as they can with the technology they have? Um, and I guess as a, a secondary question to that is, how does that affect your evaluation? You know, or is is technology something that people just need to be good enough with, or should they be really looking to invest in it to create a differentiated experience? I, I think it's it's non-negotiable to, to constantly investing in the technology platform, right? I mean, it still staggers me that it depends on what survey you read that whether it's advisors are spending, you know, whether it's forty or sixty percent of their time still you know, dealing with the operational complexities just speaks volumes of 
how optimized technology is uh, or isn't in terms of taking the friction out of the client and the advisor journey. So, you know, I think to your point, everybody has the same level of, of access to the same systems. It just, again, becomes like you said, with the uh, Michelin star analogy is the application of, of the technology. And it's a massive differentiator. And, and you see that separation with firms that are figuring out how to use technology for process and scale and, and, and the client experience. So again, it, it becomes very obvious the firms that are because it's reflected in their growth rates. It's reflected in every quantitative stat that you can look at the, at the business. So we're spending, Merchant is spending millions of dollars developing our own sort of the data analytics platform that will be a tool that our partner firms can use because as you think about KPIs and just sort of the traditional the traditional way of running a business, KPIs should inform your strategic goals. And that's only done by having great insights to data and the information of, you know, of the client. So, and then eventually that will inform what everyone is talking about, which is personalization. You, you can't have a personalized customer experience if you don't have a personal relationship or personalized data on the client, where they are in their life cycle, what's happening in their lives. We're talking to the client, the right client in the right way consistently before they even come into our office for a prospecting meeting or for, or even as they are customers of the firm. So data and data management is non-negotiable. I just, I think, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this is can a billion dollar RIA and invest enough in data management to have really intelligent insights and a way to run the business through KPIs and that tie to strategic goals and, and personalization with the client experience. I, I'm not, I don't know that answer, but we're, we're taking the initiative onto ourselves and building that on behalf of our partners. That's a great question of whether or not a billion dollar uh, firm can can have that level of investment. Because I think in our industry, everybody gets to these milestones that you always want to get to, but then each of those milestones inherently has some sort of ceiling, right? So every $3 billion firm wants to be a $10 billion firm. And they feel like, oh man, once we get to 10 billion, we'll probably finally have the resources to be able you know, to do what we want to do. But then you get to 10 and you want to be you know, 20 or 30 or something. And every $300 million firm wants to get to that billion dollar because it's like, oh, we're finally going to have the resources to be able to do what we want to do. Um, and, and funny enough, I think without bringing on a capital partner, whether it's whether it's you guys or somebody else, just having that bucket of cash to be able to invest in like the projects is always going to be tough. Um, but we are seeing it. I mean, we we have we work with firms that are you know, a couple of hundred million up to, you know, tens of billions or and even some really, really, really large enterprise firms that everybody would know. Because at the end of the day, to be able to extract insight from your data, the, the single core thing you have to be able to do is get all of your data into one spot and you have to be able to get it normalized so that you can pull insights from it. What we have learned in our journey is that the portfolio management systems think about data one way, the financial planning systems think about it another way, the CRMs think about it another way. So even if you pull it all into one giant lake, you still have to do the hard work of making all of those systems think about data your firm's way of thinking about it. And then and only then can you pull the insights out of it, you know, which is possible. It's a huge trend. We're seeing it. You know, we've uh, a lot of the people we talk to 
Also sort of approach, I would say, with some trepidation, because I think our industry is a graveyard of failed business intelligence implementation because people weren't able to to get the data right. So they're like, you know, what's different about this? And, you know, we just learned, well, what's different is you got to do all the under the hood work first to be able to put a BI tool on top of all of it. And uh, I'm sure you guys are experiencing that right now as well. We are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's, It's quite a project. All right. So let's move a little bit out of industry stuff. I love to spend a little bit of time on these podcast interviews, helping people get to know the person behind the work. So I appreciate all the insight and knowledge you've shared. I have a couple of things to talk about, but you know, for those of you who can't see the video right now, Matt has an amazing surfboard behind him. So uh, you do live in California. My question is, how often do you get to get out and, uh, and, and get on the surfboard? Oh, gosh, it depends. You know, I... (laughs) It's, you know, I grew up in Colorado and yeah, I'm a sort of an, an indigenous skier and I'm not an indigenous surfer and it's very different. And so it's been a, I, I don't know, I've been surfing probably for 20 years now and I absolutely, I just, I just love being on the water, the, the quietness the, in, in certain cases, just being serene and whatnot. But I don't know if I can be on the water three times a week, that's a, it's a huge, that's a huge win. But yeah, this is a retired board. It was actually my wedding gift from my wife, so it's 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 um, it's got sentimental meaning. But it had to get retired because it's just uh, yeah, technology evolves. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, well, you talked about skiing, so you know I mentioned in the in the intro that you are an epic endurance athlete, and that might come in the form of running. But you also do some pretty wild skiing as well, don't you? Like cross-country skiing or something like that, or maybe you used to back in Colorado? Yeah, epic, uh, not an epic uh, endurance athlete. I aspire to finish races with not um, a lot of injuries and pain at this point in my life. But yeah, I do a ton of endurance races, which has just been awesome. I guess, you know, I think I, I, I love team sports. I love being part of partnerships and i i also you know really value aspects of sort of individualism and being uh you know sort of challenging challenging yourself individually with on certain things and that's just an awesome venue to sort of go and just sort of test yourself physically and really more more mentally that's what i i, I think i enjoy the most is that the mental challenges of those races because physical parts are are because you'll see a you know 70 year old lady out there and it's so you, you're like yeah this isn't a physical thing this is this is a mental mental exercise which i i really enjoy but yeah skiing is sort of my number one passion and you know i do what's considered backcountry skiing right so that's a lot of walking up so yeah i've done that all over the all over the world all over the country that's that's kind of one of my little favorite things to do no, and there's, you know, a ton of parallels too, right? Between the endurance sports and building a business, you know, for the for the RIA owners that we're talking to or for for either of ourselves, much more of its mental toughness than than anything else, right? Completely. Completely. And that's what I love about what uh, you know I'm doing over here at Merchant is you know, really working with the fellow lunatic entrepreneurs who are willing to test and challenge and push and there's a certain certain gene, a certain characteristic, and you know we find a lot of 
and the merchant ecosystem, a lot of kindred spirits. And so I, it, from a professional perspective, it's incredibly rewarding. But then also we get to get to ski with these guys and surf with them and you know, do things that they're into as well. So it's it's that part of it's really quite fun. Uh, one of our one of our partners is a world class triathlon triathlete. I don't do triathlons, but he's hooked one of the merchant guys into his world, and so they're now doing crazy stuff, working on Iron Man and the like. So yeah, just, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's style points and there's cultural points and working, you know, working with great people is always really rewarding, which has been just, I think, phenomenal for the last, um, last five years, four years. I can't think of a better place to end. This has been an incredible conversation. I think you shared a ton of wisdom and insight, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. Of course, man. I just, I love what you guys are doing. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of you and Judd. So keep on doing what Model Marker is doing. It's, um, it's fantastic stuff. I appreciate that, man. Uh, before we sign off, uh, where can people find you or connect with you if they want to, you know, if they want to connect with you uh, after the episode? Yeah. Um, let's see. My email, matt at merchantim.com. Our website's merchantim.com. Yeah, shoot me a note. And if I can be of help or we can be of help, love to love to chat. Fantastic. All right, everybody. Well, that's been another episode of Connected. Thanks for tuning in and we will see you on the next one. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Connected. This podcast is brought to you by MileMarker and it is produced by Turncast. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps us and our show. And for more information about MileMarker and Connected, visit us at milemarker.co.